Okay, I am ready to podcast. Let's go. Let's go with the podcasting. It's time to go. Podcasting. What voice, what, what voice is this? This is this is Steve ready for business voice. Podcast now. What time to go. Where it's it's like it's a that accent is like a moving target all over the world and I don't yes. know where to place it. You don't know where from. I may be in the disaster artist or not. You don't know. It's <laughs> it's you, Richie, you're tearing me apart. That's what I'm saying. Uh this is this is Oh, turning me on a little bit, actually. Yeah, that's usually the way. Hey, Steve, guess guess what's happening on the 8th of May. The 8th of May? The 8th of May. Ironically, not the 8th Amendment referendum, which I thought you were going to allude to. No. Then. Well, I was going to, um, because that's the, the official last day to get on the register of electors. Oh, register for the 8th. Yeah. For the 8th. Register for the 8th on the 8th. It's... It's simultaneously more difficult and more simple because of the fact that it's it's the eighth. Uh, how? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <it's a> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's also International No Socks Day, which I found in my research when I was looking. International this up. No Socks Day. <laughs> international or yeah, International No Socks Day. Okay. What? Okay. Most of these international days are being pushed for by special interests. Mm-hmm. What special interest in the world? Is against socks. Is it the sandal industry? Uh, no. The, well, actually, it could be. They do stand to benefit. The official tagline, and we'll, we'll get back to the eighth referendum in a minute. Um, we have important things to talk the, about, yeah, people. The tagline is, it's time to get out your sandals and flip-flops, or today is no socks day. I knew uh, it. This, yeah. this is the uh, the Habaneras Corporation imposing its terrible ways upon us all. And, and while well, I'm on this website of Bizarre Holidays, the next, <laughs> the ninth is um, Lost Sock Memorial Day. So I don't know if those two... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if those two are affiliated. <laughs> I wonder if like someone put Bill Murray in charge of these national, international days and he's just like having the crack. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, there's a, there's there's a lot of wonderful holidays out there if you just look for them. But anyway, back to the original point. Yeah, the uh, the eighth uh, uh, Tuesday, next Tuesday, International um, No Socks Day. Yes, it's International Socks Day, but also it's your last chance to get on the supplementary register. And how do people do that? People do that by if you get, I think you can download a form. It's called RFA two. Be- beautifully bureaucratic. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very easy to remember. Uh, just think, if you can't remember RFA2, just think Rafatu, which is a little, <laughs> little mnemonic device that I use personally. You know that bad guy out of the Star Wars movie that's coming out <laughs> you soon? Know, yeah. Rafatu, that old vampire from that black and white movie. Yeah, but you, 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 I think you can just download that off the internet. You have to bring it to a guard station, get it signed in the presence of a guard with some photo ID. It's really, it's really quick and easy to do. And then I think you just send it into your... Um, your local council. We'll put yep. stuff in the show notes that are is far better at articulating this these steps than what I'm doing right now. And it has to arrive before on or before the eighth, doesn't uh, it? Yes, I believe so. So you might want to do that in advance. Yeah, like I do know that if you are um, a forgetful person, like I was the last time I had to register to vote mm-hmm. when I moved from Donegal to Dublin, that you can take it into the city to your council offices if you if you forget on the day. And yes, then they can I, acknowledge it as having been received and it still counts. I did that too. And I asked the lady at the desk like five different times, was I okay? Because I was so, so so worried about it. That was for the marriage equality referendum? Yeah, yeah. Because I had yeah. travelled home from, from California. <laughs> this is like the last day I could do it. But Speaking anyway. of which, this is probably a good time to mention something. Um, people don't realise, but you're actually supposed to be stricken off the register if you're living away from Ireland for 18 months or more. Yes. So if you're coming home, 
and you may happen to be a person that has not lived in Ireland for 18 months or more, um, that's all well and good. We'd like to have you home as long as you're mm-hmm. voting the right way. But mm-hmm. please don't tweet about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because if this is a contentious, oh, sorry, it is contentious, but if this is a very close, <laughs> close result, um, you were mentioning earlier, it could it could get taken to the courts over something like this. It, the last referendum was taken to the court because of the, um, there was loads of campaigns for people to come home and vote. And the, the detractors against the last referendum, the marriage equality one, were like, well, the, the, you basically have one side flouting to break the law. So on those grounds, we need to declare it null and void. Mm-hmm. But because that referendum was such a, an essentially a landslide for one side, the judge was just like, no, it's not relevant. Never mind. But mm. if this is a close referendum, which it smells like it's going to be, yeah. I, it, 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 it's, it's much more likely that this could cause a lot of problems after the referendum in terms of legal Jim, Jimbo Jambo, tune and fro and et cetera. Absolutely. So please don't give ammunition to people that want to interfere with democracy. Yeah, it's and it's an archaic rule that that you know this whole eighteen month thing. Like if you're yeah. like if you're like me and you plan on uh, moving back to Ireland to settle down and tomorrow, tomorrow, <laughs> or at least within eighteen months. But which I which I am planning. That's my intent. Then you do want to have a say over the future of your own country. So yeah. You should. You should totally have yeah. a say. I mean, that that's a whole other kind of worms about voting rights for people that don't live within Ireland. And Ireland is one of the most um, restrictive in terms of that sense. But regardless of that, just in this very instance, if you are someone that's coming home to vote and you don't and you're not sure if you're supposed to be voting, just don't <laughs> don't wave your arms and flap it about. Even if you're coming home to vote against the way that we want you to vote. Well, that's yeah. fine, too. But just you're only going to be causing trouble and don't be a, don't be a trouble causer. And, and definitely whatever you do. Don't do a podcast in which you mention it. Yes, whatever you do. Whatever you do, don't do that. And um, if you are bringing in your registration vote on the 8th of May, remember, only sandals and flip-flops, no socks. Put on your best voting sandals and strut on down to your local council. Jerry Adams used to give speeches all the time while wearing (laughs) sandals and white socks, just to be controversial. We, and we mentioned this before in the podcast, yeah, and we both agreed to, that we both agreed to, that that was the worst thing he's ever done. <laughs> Still a funny joke. All right, so let's quickly go to the news and let's talk about the Eighth Amendment. What a great segue. So you are living in London at the moment, certainly not for 18 months and not for another 18 months in the future. Absolutely um, not. How much have you noticed about the referendum in terms of what you've been glazing from the social medias and regular medias? Uh, highly contentious, a lot of misinformation, um, horrible uh, graphic images on posters all over Dublin. Yeah. Well, actually, that's one thing I'm going to say. In terms of what I've heard that the last few referendums have been like, it actually doesn't feel as bad as those ones. In terms like, of... Apparent- Terms of in what? terms of divisiveness, can can like obviously it's contested. People believe very strongly on both sides, but like the last ones were like cutthroat people tearing lumps out of each other all the time. This mm. one does seem a little bit more measured. Those terrible posters you're talking about, in fairness to the love both who are the main campaigners for a no vote, mm-hmm. they're not actually associated with those. Apparently, they're being brought in by like outside of Ireland parties who are trying to make this part of their own issue. And really? Like they've got these, I walked past one outside the Irish Times building in Tara Street. They have these huge, big poster-sized banners and, well, billboard-sized banners, sorry, and they're just standing outside and it's like, it's pretty graphic, disgusting images of mm-hmm. of fetuses and, and yeah, just 
disgusting stuff. Yeah. And they're standing around trying to hand out leaflets. But I was listening to an interview with John McGurk from the Love Both and he tried, he was like, that is disgusting. I hate that. I'd rather not see that. And they're not associated with us at all. Sorry. I think the line was so bad. When you were saying love both, uh, I heard boat the first time you said it and I didn't question Well, it. I have heard that poster. I've seen that poster before. It's actually a mockery of the campaign saying love boats because okay. if you vote no, you're going to keep up the boat industry with women having to leave Ireland. Very clever. <laughs> yes. So the love both, both, B-O-T-H campaign mm-hmm. is this is, is this thing itself from like the more aggravated versions of there. And like they do have pictures of ultrasounds on their posters, but it's not so... It's, a, it's yeah. evocative, but not graphic. Uh, yeah. And obviously, if you're somebody that has been personally touched by the issue of abortion, any any image of anything is going to be a trigger for you. So Absolutely. it's obviously not nice in that sense. Yeah. But yeah, it's also not as bad as what I thought it would be. It looks like because the polls are telling us that the, the yes side is going to win. OK. Even like it's obviously going to get closer as we get closer to the vote. And you're not really supposed to trust polls these days because they're never right. Sure. But at the same time, there's like such a gap between the two sides it just doesn't seem like they're going to have enough time or enough momentum to close it and turn it into a no victory. How big of a gap are we talking? At least 45, now? yes, 20, no, and the rest undecided. Okay. Which a lot of undecideds, but still... That's a huge amount of undecideds, yeah. Unless every single person that's undecided and a good chunk of the yes vote switch, it just doesn't seem like it's going to go... It, it doesn't seem like it's not going to pass. Okay. So the problem then, when you get into the nitty gritty of the politics, is that we've removed the bit from our constitution, but we still don't have laws regulating how abortion is supposed to happen in Ireland. And that's the next part. And that's going to take a long time. How long How long do we think? They want to talk about the autumn, but the autumn, <laughs> depending on which part of your calendar you look at, is anywhere between August and the end of November. Yeah. And there is a chance that we might have an election because the current arrangement between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael is to only allow for one more budget. Mm-hmm which is going to happen in October. And so after that, they could potentially pull the plug and have a referen- have, have an election, a general election, where the main issue that's going to be argued over is abortion again. Again, but... Yeah, but over so, like the actual legislation because... Okay, okay. So it's not taking a step backwards. It's just maybe halting a step forwards. Well, you see, this is the thing about the referendum. The referendum is only removing the issue of abortion from the constitution, but potentially a, a government could get into the doll and illegalize abortion again like really on, yeah of course because we're not what we're putting into the constitution with this referendum is not allowing for abortion we're basically just taking the banning of abortion out of the constitution okay so political parties of the future will be more than within their rights if they have enough votes in the doll to illegalize abortion however way they want and that's is that looking like a likely thing just given the current it's, it depends so with the current makeup of the doll the the proposed legislation of um, abortions for 12 weeks and then with consult- consultation of doctors etc afterwards mm-hmm. um, under the provisions of going to your GP will pass because mm-hmm. that's how the current doll has basically proposed it but if there's an election you're not really going to get out and out anti-abortion candidates because they never really do well they tend to be total nodders that don't attract that much votes mm-hmm. but people that are inclined to not like abortion will probably send their votes towards Fianna Fáil mm-hmm. and then if Fianna Fáil come back as the main government, they would not be as likely to bring in as liberal a regime as is being proposed. Okay. And that's just the nitty gritty of the whole political situation. Okay. Christ. Yeah. So we're not out of the woods yet, folks. No, not at all. Not even if, we, if we win but this the referendum. But the first step is, is, is voting in this referendum. Yes. So step, one step at a time. With no socks, apparently. With no socks. So next story, uh, the Windrush thing. This is you living in the UK. You must have heard a bit about this. Yeah, it's that, it's that ship. 
It's, yeah, the, it's a ship. From, like, but from like decades and decades ago. The 60s. That, this, yeah, that brought in a bunch of, um, was it people from the, the Caribbean yeah. looking to uh, start a new life in the UK? But like, why yes. is it coming? Why is it coming back up now? So it's actually, it's, it's called the Windrush scandal because that was one of the most famous ships, but lots of other people got on lots of other ships. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people here came mm-hmm. from the former British colonies to the UK in the 60s because it was legal and they were basically being asked to come because the UK needed workers. Mm-hmm. So they came, they, they set themselves up, had a good life, raised loads of kids. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, and like they were too busy as they were living their lives through the decades up till now to think about their legal status. So the law changed. You're not allowed to move from Jamaica to UK and work or live. You need to apply for visa processes like most people. Mm-hmm. So these people are living in the UK without proper paperwork because they just didn't think about getting around to it. And now all of a sudden, because the policies in the UK Home Department, which is the one that deals with immigration, have gotten a lot stricter. They're just applying the laws that they have and the policies they have and are denying these people services that they had access to beforehand because they don't wow, have the right paperwork. Like well after the fact as well. Decades. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not that they don't have a legal right to be in the UK. They, they do. Mm-hmm. They just forgot to get the right paperwork, basically. It's, it's just a, a matter bureaucratic of bureaucracy. issue. Yeah. yeah. People have lost their driver's licenses. People have been denied re-entry to the UK when they've left and tried to come back home to see their families. And the most disturbing parts is that many, like a lot of these people are pretty elderly now at this stage and they need proper health care. Of course. People are being denied cancer treatment from the NHS because that they're being told is, that they don't have the right status. That's obscene. It is. It is pretty disgusting. Yeah. So this was not an intentional discriminatory policy against the people that came over in the Windrush. It's just a side effect of... What they, they were trying to create a hostile environment for illegal immigration in the Home Department. Mm. And this started back in 2008, even when the Labour Party were in control. But Theresa May, when she was the Home, home Secretary for, I think she's the longest serving Home Secretary before she became Prime Minister since World War II, because normally people don't last that long in a pretty tricky department. Right. And since Theresa May left, uh, Amber Rudd has been taking it since then. And she is the minister that's just been left holding the grenade, basically. <laughs> just waiting for it to go. Yeah. So it has exploded in her face. It became a huge thing. So the people from the Commonwealth countries were over in the UK a couple of weeks ago for their conference. And all the heads of state basically begged Theresa May to give their citizens like proper treatment in the UK. And that's all of a sudden when it snapped and became a huge issue in the UK media. Mm. It, like you started to see just how many people were being affected by this. Mm. It's all getting fixed slowly but surely. People's statuses are being switched to the right part. People are starting to get services. They're being told they can come back into the UK, all these things. But the damage is already done. Like, so is there any lasting effects from this fuck up or are they reverting, fixing everything? They're, they are actually like the, the government is going at breakneck speed to try and fix all the mistakes. The lasting effects are going to be political. Right. So basically they're trying to figure out who exactly is to blame. And even though it's not technically Amber Rudd because she's only been in power for a couple of years mm. she didn't do anything to fix it and she kind of dropped the ball when the crisis fell onto her lap and most importantly she can't blame her predecessor because her predecessor right. in the department is now her boss right <laughs> <laughs> sorry i should laugh so much it's just a it's, a, it's like yeah. something from a, from a terrible sitcom yeah politically it's like it's a pretty shitty situation yeah uh, so she used to be one of the strongest candidates to replace Theresa May as Prime Minister if she was to step down, mm. Amber Rudd. But now yeah. I think she's going to be lucky to hold on to her job for another week. She's having a hell of a week. Yeah, but I mean, feck them. It, it was an absolutely horrendous policy. It's and just absolutely disgusting. 
we had this discussion with Jimmy from the right dishonourable. Um, although he claims not to be a conservative, he certainly had a lot of what we would call conservative views. Mm-hmm. He said that like, oh, well, nobody's breaking the law here. Like, well, the, the government aren't doing anything wrong by enforcing the law. But the problem is, is that they were doing wrong things when they were enforcing the law because they were affecting people's lives just as a matter of policy and bureaucracy when they shouldn't have been. Yeah. So you're, what you're saying is take that, Jimmy. Take that, Jimmy. <laughs> take that, comma, Jimmy, not take that, Jimmy. <laughs> that's like a whole new that's a whole other thing <laughs> yeah well that, like what singer would you call jimmy could team up with take that for a, a big tour oh take oh so you're saying take that colon jimmy yeah <laughs> <laughs> or take that colon jimmy this is so many ways. <laughs> the english language is so weird it's horrible uh jimmy it's, it's your uh, fault for colonizing us and giving it to us if we could have to do this podcast in irish we wouldn't have these problems yeah we never had to have any of these freudian slips in the irish language well maybe we do we have to get peter cavanagh back on to tell us yeah exactly any more news yes koreans are are having loads of talks and having a great old time great yeah so i hear do you remember when we did a podcast on korea not that long ago and i said everything was fucked and it was never going to get better uh th- sh- we should never never acknowledge our back catalogue it's just all mistakes <laughs> yeah that was like a whole episode of a mistake <laughs> Yeah. It turns out they're actually getting along pretty fantastically. Yeah. What what happened? What what was the catalyst for that? Um they met in a border um they met at the, at the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, which is like the demarcation between the two states. That mm-hmm. has basically been the the end of the of the line of the war from back in the 50s that has never officially ended. And all of a sudden after the Olympics, the Winter Olympics that we talked about before, they the North Koreans and the South Koreans are like, hey, let's let's have a few talks. Let's let's actually end this war and let's just get back to having good relations and maybe even get rid of your nukes up there in North Korea. Grab a couple of pints. Be grand. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it was. Apparently it was like a great crack of a visit between the two lads. There was video of, of first um, Kim from North Korea stepped across the line into the South and then Moon from the president of South Korea was like, hey, when am I going to get to visit the North? And Kim was like, oh, let's go back. And then they both walked across the little line into the North of Korea. Wow. <laughs> and then there was like that montage of them riding a tandem bike together and then yeah, getting, like, a, ding, ding. getting an ice cream together and Kim's ice cream fell off, but then Moon put Aww. his ice cream on top of his cone. <laughs> and then they went and they tried on outfits together and Kim was sitting there and Moon came out in all of these different clothes and Kim kept giving him thumbs up or thumbs down. Well, you see, because Moon was trying to uh, make Kim feel better by like appeasing his North Korean sensibilities, they were all just straight black like pantsuits. Yeah, it was crazy. It was the same costume 18 different times. Yeah, but, but Kim was acting as if they were different each time. Yeah. So they're getting along great, is what we're saying. <laughs> it seems to be. And it looks like it's, it's looking really positive for these big peace talks that are supposed to be coming up soon between like America, Japan, both Koreas, China and everyone else that wants to have a shout. This is it's, so lovely that there's like a nice story because after you, you, you taught me about North Korea, I was really scared. Yeah, I mean, all the sceptics are saying, please be careful because the North Koreans are infamous liars. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a fair point. And also I did hear that apparently all the underground testing that they were doing, exploding nuclear bombs, actually caused a massive earthquake that may have destroyed their nuclear testing facility. Wow. <laughs> so it could be that they're like, oh, um, we don't have any capability to test nuclear weapons anymore. Let's dress this up as a peace treaty rather than the <laughs> fact that all our scientists are now under big rocks. Oh my God, I shouldn't laugh at that. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if anybody actually, I'm sure people did get hurt in a massive earthquake underground. But, but it is, there's something very poetic about it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. It seems to be a, a pretty good story and hopefully it will turn out to be one and Donald Trump won't come in waving his sweaty, ha- sweaty tiny hands around and destroy it all in a couple of weeks when he joins in. Gross. Really gross. Yeah. Is that all the news? That's all the news. That's all. Nothing else happened ever. <laughs> if you listen to this show and this was your only source of news, you would believe that every two weeks only three things ever happened. 
<laughs> and a lot of weird things that we decide to talk about. Every 14 days, three things happen. And that's just a, that's just a news cycle, baby. There's a famous story that like the BBC in the late 40s had like another news. There is no news. And now some music. <laughs> Simpler times. But now that we're done talking about the news, Steve, I have a very serious issue to bring up with you. Okay. You're familiar with Ted the Labradoodle. He's your pet. He's also My, yes, uh, the production producer. Assistant. Yeah, he's a production assistant producer on the show. He's also a professional good boy. Yes. Um, but we were chat- he was chatting to me in the What I'm Politics cafeteria and he's not happy, Steve. Oh no. He's not happy. He feels he's not being well uh, compensated for all of the work he puts in in producing this show. Mm. And uh, he was saying, he was bringing up about his benefits package that you gave him back when mm-hmm. we started and how literally the benefits package was uh, a package of sausages, which in his words, he has since, um, that particular investment, he has in, uh, since exhausted. Right. So he is not happy and he's threatening to unionize and I don't know what he means oh you mean like a trade union yeah something like that I don't know I don't understand he's a dog because English ain't crazy <laughs> but I'm not sure I'm not sure what the situation is hey don't you go blaming the blame on him your dog is should be better if you're actually having these discussion with him I know right? yeah uh, yeah you're, you're, you're definitely right on that front so what, 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 <laughs> you're what so PC we... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to lose our Labrador audience um, yeah no I've got no idea um I gave him some sausages and I thought that was all I had to do. But apparently if you're telling us we have to give our employees more rights, then maybe we should go ask someone. Yeah, who should we ask? Uh, Michael Taft. He's a dude who is a researcher for SIP2, which is Ireland, one of our just Ireland's largest trade unions. Also, we should, we should set up that uh, even though I'm present for this interview, I dialed in for it. Steve, Steve met Michael in the Headstuff studio and I dialed in. But the connection was so bad that I gradually just like slipped out of the interview. So you'll hear me at the start, but by the end of it, I'm just not there. Yeah, it was it was kind of a bit disconcerting because we had like divvied up the questions and then there'd be silence and I'd be waiting for Richie to come in. And then you'd be like, have you guys stopped talking? <laughs> yeah, I can't hear anything. Okay, so yeah. Wouldn't would it be funny actually, it's like, it wasn't actually connect, connectivity issues. It was the, as he was talking about unions, I realized that, wait a second, I'm not earning anything from this podcast. I'm going to go on strike. And by the end of the episode, I was on strike. Oh, well, then I didn't get to join in in the strike and then I'm not going to get any of the benefits. I'm a scab now. You're a, sca- you're a filthy scab. Okay, Michael Taft, what are trade unions? So we're here with Michael Taft, um, economic researcher for SIP2. Would that be correct summarization of your yes. profession? Yep. Um, you've been working and studying around the trade union movement for quite a long time in Ireland. That's right, for yep. well over 20 years. 20 years, yep. So definitely right. the person we talk to. So, Richie, quite a few times we've mentioned trade unions and the trade union movement in passing when talking about the different topics. And we always say we have to do an episode on that. Yeah, um, I was actually thinking about it recently because uh, I have all these vague, vague recollections, vague memories of trade union a trade union having a an like an effect on my life because my dad was in the prison officers association and i remember stuff like was having good health care as a result of that and the actions of that that union and one memory in particular revolved around me i think i think i was running through the house trying to look for my pokemon cards and i slipped on something and i cracked my head off a wall and i don't remember much after <laughs> that but i do remember being very well looked after and I have vague recollections of it being attributed to the actions of, of that union in particular and the healthcare it, it allowed us to have. And ever since then, I've been wanting to kind of get a better understanding of it. So you and want 
wait, so you're telling me that we've asked Michael, an economic expert on this subject, yeah. in to talk about why you got your head fixed after you fell over running for your Pokemon cards. That's because that's because of an effective trade union. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very simple as that. They were able to negotiate uh, a healthcare package for uh, 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 the family. So that when somebody cracks their head or stubs their toes or has a very serious uh, injury uh, or yeah. uh, a condition. Other Pokemon-related accident. This is it. Um, uh, that they, they will get that treatment. And it's quite likely that in many workplaces uh, in Ireland and the UK and the US, uh, if it weren't for the trade union, they wouldn't have those health care benefits. And in America, of course, those health care benefits are extremely valuable given the way they their health uh, system is constructed. Yeah. So, of course. at the basic level then we'll start off by asking for a definition of what exactly is a trade union. Trade union is very simple. It's uh, when a group of workers in a workplace come together to uh, negotiate uh, their wages, their terms, their conditions uh, and they do that what can be called collectively together and they do that through the organization of the trade union. If you just maybe think about it, it was, you know, going back, you know, centuries, when workers came together to uh, exert influence and power uh, against their employer, then they set up an organization to facilitate that. They brought in more workers in different sectors. This organization grew and was able to give them resources, such as uh, 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 just very simple things like information. They might give them legal support. They give them financial support in the case of, uh, of uh, them going out on strike, you know, strike pay. From that very simple start of just a group of workers coming together, they expanded this organization to provide all manner of support. So that's, that's essentially what a trade union is. And it's not anything more really... Uh, then those workers uh, working with each other, relying on each other, helping each other in the workplace, and then across workplaces, uh, whether it's in the same sector, finance sector, or across the sectors themselves, so that uh, workers in one sector help another. That's, that's really what it's about. And how would you say the state of the trade union movement across the world is going? Uh, if you follow many of the news from, say, the non-industrialized countries, the developing world, it's interesting to note trade unionists uh, face jail, they face losing their job, uh, they face all manner of state oppression just by wanting to represent workers. Where, would, uh, where What kind of places in the world would this be? Well, this this would occur uh, in South America. I mean, Colombia is a prime example where, you know, trade unionists get shot. But it, this is a feature of suppression, whether it's in kind of Middle Eastern countries, African countries, Asian countries. Now, we've kind of, in, in Europe and America and the UK, uh, we don't have uh, those problems. But we do have other problems. And one of them is that trade unions will have to struggle and think very carefully how they become relevant to workers in 21st century working conditions because they are changing rapidly. People's expectations are changing rapidly. People's life goals and what they want are changing. Uh, uh, so trade unions have to kind of catch up with that because trade unions were born in a period uh, where there were large employers, uh, where it was kind of a male, it was mostly male. This is a, a kind of a new period. And certainly in Ireland, trade unions and trade unionists are continually discussing how we can make ourselves relevant to changing patterns because the thing about capitalism is it's extremely dynamic it's not a sitting target it's a moving target and you've got to move with it can you give an example like a case study of, of what kind of 
situation we, uh, trade union would need to change for? Like, how would it need to adapt to to a modern changing dynamic? Well, for instance, uh, we've seen over the last 20, 30, 20 to 30 years the rise of the service sector. And unlike, say, the traditional industrial sector, the manufacturing firm or the utilities, where, again, it used to be male-dominated uh, and socially, you know, in a very socially conservative uh, societies where women were, you know, stayed at home, so that uh, trade unions looked at looked after primarily males working on full time, you know the open ended con- you know permanent contracts, you know the nine to five, forty hour a week employment uh, for the rest of their life. But with the rise of uh, the services sector, you know women especially started coming into the workforce, and of course they had different experiences of work because not only were they in the workforce, but they were also the primary worker at home. Mm. Uh, so they had to balance their work and their life to, to care uh, in, in the home. And, of course, that set up new demands that they wanted. You know, it, but sometimes it's, if, you, if you talk to a lot of people, and now it's becoming more men and, and women and men as well, the issue isn't so much about pay, although it can be in certain sectors. The issue is about certainty of hours, when they are working, the notice that they have for when they are working, this occurs especially in precarious working conditions. You also will find a lot of turnover in these sectors. So you might be organizing a workplace and then two or three people leave and, you know, two or three more coming in. And you find in a lot of workplaces, like there's a 20, 30, 40 percent turnover. Uh, so these these are the different challenges. There's different expectations, different working patterns, and those make it difficult. And I'd say another thing is that uh, in the past, workplaces were much larger. It's far easier to organize a workplace with 500 employees. You know, now try to organize 100 workplaces with five employees. The same 500, but that's extremely fragmented. And we are finding work, you know, through outsourcing, temporary agency work, uh, where sometimes it is very difficult even to define who the employer is. We're finding that fragmentation a a big challenge in terms of um, uh, recruiting, organizing workers and representing them. Do you think the the, the change in the dynamics of the labor market in that sense, in that there's more zero-hour contracts it's harder to organize because the, the workers are fragmented across loads of different employers and sometimes you're not even sure who the employer is. Do you think that has been a reaction of capitalism to fight back against the trade union movement? There's no doubt that employers are practicing what can be called union avoidance and they're doing it very aggressively. You know, back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, there was almost a paternalist relationship between employers and employees and trade unions were accepted as part of the feature. Uh, that, of course, changed with the rise of neoliberalism, uh, finance capital, and a much, much more aggressive managerial class. So I think you will find that that is also a feature. Uh, whereas before, employers were inclined to negotiate with trade unions. didn't mean they liked them, but they just accepted them as part of the landscape, especially because, say, back in the 70s and 80s, nearly half, possibly over half, of uh, Irish workers were members of trade unions, so they had to uh, take them on board. So that's one feature. I don't think that the uh, evolution of work practices and technological changes we've seen, for instance, in the gig economy, I don't think that's itself a reaction to trade unions. I think that's just the logic of capitalism, finding new ways to uh, generate profit. And in that process, we're uncovering new ways that they exploit workers. So uh, I think it's a combination uh, of the two, but it is a much more hostile environment 
uh, today than it would have been, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Before we dive straight into the negative parts of the working conditions in today's economy, could you just, would you know of a country in Europe, the UK or the US that is doing it quite well in terms of the balance between capitalism, profit and good working conditions? Well, I suppose one always looks to the Nordic countries. There, the, uh, if you will, the class compromise between labour and capital since World War II. Uh, these are also societies which are high, were highly homogenous. Which, which also helped. They had shared values, shared historical values, the social democratic governments. So they had both a political and uh, industrial benefits to creating the, the social prosperity that they created. So there in these countries, you have like 70-80% of workers are in a trade union. There is you know, the level of wage bargaining it's very dense. It's not just happening at the workplace. It's happening at the sectoral level, you know, across a sector. It's happening at a national level. Uh, you know, so many things are up for bargaining. They're not just bargaining about pay, but they're bargaining about bargaining about hours, you know, work certainty. So, you know, I guess you would say that those countries have performed best in terms of ensuring that uh, not only were they highly competitive, you know, and highly prosperous economies, but that those uh, that the uh, wealth that they produced was distributed more fairly. Of course, those models are coming under pressure today, but they're in a better, you know, they're in a better starting point than say where uh, the Anglo-American model, which Ireland participates in, you know, it's a, it's a lot better than that situation. And so, which country do you think has the worst then? Following on from the best, who's the worst? If we're just looking in terms of Europe, uh, obviously in the new member states, the former East Bloc or Soviet, you know the Soviet, the Soviet Union dominated states, uh, Bulgaria and Romania. I mean, the people there are struggling. There's very high levels of poverty, social exclusion, very weak political and labor market institutions, and of course, it's a combination of corruption. So they're having a difficulty. You think? I think you will find, uh, I mean, take a look at poor Greece. I mean, uh, the EU Commission, the IMF, and the ECB, the European Central Bank, all three together decided that they would declare war uh, on the people of Greece, uh, a war which they are winning every day. Uh, so the miseration of the Greek people continue. Uh, we find other countries are having difficulties uh, if you want to look at it in terms of, you know, income inequality or levels of, of poverty. But let's not forget that even in kind of the more prosperous areas like France, Britain would be a relatively prosperous uh, uh, economy overall. Germany, there are pockets of deprivation, pockets of inequality, alienation. People with low skills, their hopes of achieving their life goals very difficult. So it's not just one country. There's a range of countries for historical reasons, but let's not forget. I mean, look at the U.S. I mean, a very prosperous, very prosperous country. I mean, I know I was born and raised there, but the pockets of poverty would remind you of a developing world country, you know. So, you know, it's not just about how much an economy produces. It's what it does with that production. Sure. This is a mostly political podcast, so we're, we're dabbling in economics for this episode, but the political issues are still the most interest to us. Do you think trade unions in, especially, I guess, the Western world, I'm, I'm not sure about how it works in the, in the developing countries, but they work cl- very closely with, with a particular political party usually in their system. So, for example, in Ireland, it's the Irish 
Labour Party in the UK, it's the Labour Party there. And then in the US, it would be the the Democratic Party. You think that is that just a natural development of the democratic system that you've had that the trade union movement seems to pick one party and then they become the historical allies? Or is there a tangible, good and effective result of, of one party having all this influence from the trade union movement? Well, it's not a matter of picking, is it? That the matter of these political parties and the trade unions emerged out of the same uh, broad labour movement, the same uh, movement of working class. I mean, working class people uh, set up trade unions and they set up these parties. So uh, one was to represent them in the workplace and the other was to represent them uh, in parliament, in local government, in the political sphere. So uh, they have the same roots. So that's why that's why they, they work closely together. Now, sometimes it's kind of a, a fraught relationship. Uh, one partner doesn't kind of dictate to the other. But they, uh, it's the same source. So it's not a matter that, you know, trade unions kind of, well, I think this year the Tories are looking good for us. Or, uh, geez, maybe those Republicans in North Carolina, you know, I mean, some of them are good lads, you know. No, it's not, it's not like that at all. Uh, these parties grew, grew up with each other, especially in Europe. I mean, don't forget, it was the trade union movement that set up the Labour Party here. Again, the same thing in the UK. Uh, so it's not a pick and choose. It's not kind of looking at a balance sheet. Of course, trade unions, no matter what government is in power, they have to try to deal with that government. You know, they have to negotiate. If you're a public sector worker, you negotiate your pay deal. Uh, you have to tr try to negotiate either positive changes that you're seeking or to limit the negative damage that a right-wing government will do. So they do have to engage with those governments. But at the same time, the same people who are doing that then just, you know, walk to the next room down the corridor, put on their party political hat, and they're trying to replace that government with a party that represents the values of the working class. So, in other words, let's get away from this idea that somehow it's the trade union bureaucracy and it's a political party bureaucracy. It was, this, it was broadly the same people who, who started those up. Now, obviously, there's a problem there because so many social democratic parties, and this is a phenomenon that goes across uh, Europe, in many ways, uh, you could say they've forgotten their roots in the working class. And they've forgotten the primacy of the workplace as the driving force of political society and political culture. And uh, that's why so in so many countries, social democracy is having a very difficult time. Uh, in Germany, in Italy, in France, in the U.S., of course, uh, you find the Democratic Party, you know, depending on the region, depending on the area. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling as well. And there's a big debate. Uh, and there's debates in all these parties, you know. How can we not... Not return to our roots, because that's kind of, you know, uh, nostalgic. You can't go back to the past. But how can we reinvent and reintegrate, reinvigorate a politics whose starting point is people in the workplace? Uh, so, Michael, how big of an issue is income inequality these days? It's uh, an increasing problem. Uh, this is being acknowledged by bodies like the OECD and the International Monetary Funds, which, you know, traditionally have not been kind of, you know, progressive organizations are coming out uh, and highlighting these social issues. But they now recognize, and I think this has been recognized for a long time, uh, that inequality has been rising uh, since the 80s. And actually, inequality uh, was a contributing factor uh, to the crash. And the way that worked is that, and we, this, we saw this especially in the U.S., 
wages stagnated after inflation, workers weren't getting a pay increase. And this would have started, say, in the late 70s, early 80s. So to compensate for that, because you had to keep the economy running, financial regulations were loosened and banks were able to pretty much give out, you know, money by the barrel loads. Uh, they were lending to everybody. They were lending on generous terms. We saw some. Of, we saw that, of course, in our own situation, uh, where credit became easy. People were given 120 percent mortgages. But the fact is that wages were not growing to meet that. The productive economy was not able to sustain those debts. Assets were rising, like house prices or shares or you know whatever your your money might have been on. And then the crash came, and all because they the system. Uh, which was based on trying to drive up profit levels to their highest level possible meant that they had to suppress wages. Uh, so in that, con- in that situation, wage inequality rose. And wage inequality is still rising. Ireland, uh, if you look at our peer group in the EU, and that would be northern and central European economies, because there's no sense in comparing ourselves to Bulgaria or Malta or even Greece. Uh, we have one of the highest levels of wage inequality uh, here in in Ireland compared to um, compared to our peer group, one of the driving forces behind that is because of our weak labor regulations, notably the fact that we are unique among industrialized countries and in not having a law requiring employers to recognize workers' right to collective bargaining. In effect, uh, Irish employers have legal sanction to ignore their workers. That's not something that happens anywhere, not even in the U.S., which is much more market-oriented and market-focused uh, than even we are, uh, never mind the rest of the European Union. So, uh, and again, I mean, the OECD and the IMF, and this is just, this is just a hoot. Uh, they said that uh, one of the driving forces behind inequality, which was one of the driving forces behind the property crash, was uh, the uh, weakness of the trade union movement. So, how did Ireland end up with such a weak trade union movement, and how did we how do we not have that very specific and important law about recognising workers' collective rights? Well, we didn't always have a weak trade tra- trade union. I mean, obviously, it would have been smaller given the larger population, but that was a function that we were so long an agricultural based uh, uh, economy. But back in the 70s and 80s, uh, there was very high levels of trade union membership that's called trade union density, you know, the proportion of workers that are in a trade union. Uh, It has fallen just like it has fallen in the UK. In fact, it's fallen in the UK faster. It's fallen in the US, uh, though they were always at a much lower level than either the US or the UK were. As to why uh, we don't have... um, uh, collective bargaining legislation. Well, that's part of the whole question of why we never had a social democratic government, why we had ne- never had a left-of-center government. Uh, because under a left-of-center government, you would expect that that would be a fundamental right that would be uh, vindicated uh, in law. But you're not going to get that, especially with Fine Gael, who really aren't really partial to, to trade unionism. So they argue that uh, on the basis that, well, if we introduce collective bargaining all the multinational, you know, we won't get any multinational investment. Even though these countries where multinationals come from all have collective bargaining legislation in one form or another. Uh, probably the main opposition is to uh, domestic employers uh, who um, 
you know, with some exceptions historically and today, have been by and large hostile to, to trade union uh, to, to trade union presence in their workplace, and that's becoming more. So the reason why we don't have as many progressive features in our legislation, whether that's in the labor market, whether that's uh, uh, in public services, we have fairly weak public services, we don't have free health care, uh, we certainly don't have free education, from three years on up to third level, uh, the reason why we don't have many of these services and why we don't have many many of these um, in work benefits or social protection supports is the same reason that we've never had a you know we've never had a progressive government in this country. You recently wrote an article um, about precarious working. I think was the the title of the subject, um, which basically has to do with the, the zero hour contracts and the the kind of gig economy side of of the modern of modern workplace. Um, do you think that's going to become even more of, a, of an important and big issue as, as the economy continues to digitize? Well, first off, precariousness is far bigger than just what we think of as the gig economy, the, you know, the Ubers and such. Precariousness is anybody who does not have a permanent full-time contract. You're talking about hundreds of thousands and, you know, it's people who, where you will find the risk of precariousness, which is the risk of insecure hours or insecure income or insecure access you know, intermittent access to social benefits. It's hard to put a number on it because there's no official definition, but you are talking about hundreds of thousands. There's nearly 200,000 workers that are on temporary fixed-term contracts. There's tens of thousands as temporary agencies' workers. Uh, there are what are called own-account workers. Those are self-employed, who don't employ anybody else. They're just self-employed. But uh, a third of them make less than 17,000 euros a year. I mean, you know, there's a lot of income insecurity and on top of the fact that they don't have things like unemployment benefit. So if you're talking about the, the landscape of insecure work, it's significant, it's growing, and importantly, it permeates all sectors. It's not just about low paid. Uh, education is a sector with a huge level of, um, you know, temporary contracts. And you find this phenomenon, especially at the, uh, at the third level, in terms of the health services. You know, a lot of agency work there, a lot of temporary contract or precarious working in the health services. Uh, so it's not just something that we think of as confined to, uh, you know, unskilled or low-skilled workers or, say, in the hospitality or in the retail sector or something like that. It cuts across uh, uh, any number of sectors. And, yes, there is a real danger that we could see a significant rise in these type of atypical working arrangements not only with, with the what's called the fourth and you know the the fourth industrial revolution the fourth you know the digital revolution because well i think it's important not to kind of scaremonger or go to the extreme the fact is that things like automation artificial intelligence robotics they are going to, in many sectors, they are going to change the way people work. Jobs are going to be lost or jobs are, the quality of job is going to be downgraded. There won't be as many, the need for as many full-time workers. People will be on if and when contracts, just-in-time contracts uh, to facilitate capital and to facilitate the employers. And if people are not in trade unions, if the trade union movement itself is weak, that means those workers won't have a voice in that transition to these new, uh, these new uh, means of working. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a real opportunity to increase 
the prosperity of individuals. And what I mean by prosperity is not just money in the pocket, but the quality of their life. Because if you've got a situation where, you know, people need to work fewer hours to achieve the same amount of, you know, output because you have a robot doing half or you have automation, which is innovating processes in a firm or across society or whatever it might be, that means people can actually have good quality incomes, much shorter working weeks, a lot more security. That, you know, that, that is possible. That is not possible without a strong trade union movement, a strong left political movement, if employers and if capital are given their heads and there's minimal control over it, they will, of course, act in their own interest. Why would anybody be surprised at that? And their interest is very short-termist. It's very siloed. Again, that's not surprising. Uh, they're going to chase the profits for their firm. They're going to chase shareholder value. Not realizing that they're actually, in one sense, that old phrase, they might be digging their own grave because if there's more people unemployed, if there's more people living under, uh, uh, on, uh, you know, insecure hours or insecure income, you know, who's going to buy all these goods and services? You know, who's going to generate that, you know, that output? So we could be looking at, uh, you know, really vicious two-tier, three-tier, four-tier type of societies. And the bottom rungs will be getting bigger and bigger. I think you've kind of covered most of it in, in what you just said there. But as a closing question, we wanted to ask you, on a scale of totally fine to totally fucked, what <laughs> prognosis would you give the, 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 the future average uh, working conditions for the medium to long term? Well, always I tend to be optimistic, you know. Uh, That's good. We don't normally end on optimism, so we'll take that. Well, I mean, what is it? It's the old, it's the old uh, political saying, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. We have to analyze the concrete conditions today. Uh, they're not good in many sectors. In many sectors, they are. You know, I mean, you know, it's not, there's not, an, uh, there's not a society-wide immiseration. There's a lot of people who are doing well. Uh, people actually in trade unions tend to do better than those who aren't in trade unions. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it, it's not all bad news. And you also see some bright spots. For instance, trade union membership has been falling each year for the last 20 years. But over the last few years, uh, my own union, SIP2, and other trade unions have been having a rethink about how they organize themselves, how they reach out to people, how they relate, and actually go and listen to people, you know? Listen to what their concerns are. And they've been kind of trying to reform their organizational practices, their institutions around that. And this year, we have seen, as I said, for the first time in a couple decades, an increase in trade union membership. So that's good news. Now, we've got a long ways to go. But if you're on the incline, uh, you're in a better position to quicken, quicken that pace. But, I mean, also let's look politically. The British Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn has done is just fantastic. What specifically they have done, and it's very similar to what Bernie Sanders did in the U.S., reached a new generation uh, of people. Uh, these are younger people. Maybe back 20 years ago, they might have been called middle class, comfortable, university educated and all that. So sometimes there's a kind of a sniffy reaction to that, you know. But actually what is happening, of course, is that these are the people who are on the front line of future precariousness. These are people who know that they may not be able to own their own home despite their education, despite their class background. Uh, they're facing insecure work contracts, insecure income, and they realize that, you know, uh, the old solutions won't work. So 
you know, there's a lot of good things that we can take from that. What about Ireland? Um, <laughs> well, what we really need, uh, not only within the trade union movement, but among the political left in Ireland, is greater cooperation and greater unity uh, to overcome the fragmentation, to overcome the historical suspicions the different parties have with each other. Again, it's an old trade union maxim, but you're never stronger than when you're united. It doesn't mean everybody joins one big party, I mean, that, or everybody joins one big union. But what it does mean is that, you know, all the different progressive organizations, uh, whether that be trade unions, whether that be um, uh, political parties or civil society groups, come together, respecting respecting each other's uh, uh, organizational autonomy and history and where they're coming from, but find ways of working together. And I think we see it in small ways, and this is, this is very positive, but a couple of weekends ago, uh, there was a march of anywhere up to 10,000 people called by the uh, National Coalition for Homeless and Housing, uh, or actually the National Homeless and Housing Coalition. But that coalition is made up of all the major trade unions, uh, all the parties of the broad left, and a number of civil society groups who are working directly with the homeless or working with people in housing need. And they all come together, and they've come together in this coalition, and there's other groups as well forming, cooperating. And, you know, if you want to take on issue by issue, the housing crisis, crisis in the healthcare system, uh, whatever you're having yourself, you can only do that by bringing together all the people who share the same values and principle even if sometimes they differ over the tactical stuff. Sometimes, you know, we're very quick to kind of jump up and down on our differences. At the end of the day, listen, we're all sitting at the same meal. It's just that, we, you know, we use different condiments, that's all. Okay, fair enough on that note. And um, we'll say thanks very much, Michael, for taking the time to talk to oh, us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so that was the interview. Um, Richie, you disappeared in the second half, so now's your chance. Say goodbye to Michael Taft. <laughs> goodbye, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what I'm did you so think about sorry. the? I'm so sorry, Michael. You're very good, like interviewee. But my God, <laughs> yeah, that we'll, we'll we'll try a different setup next time, and hopefully, the G- Jeepus it'll turn out better. So now mm-hmm. that you actually got to hear the interview, what did you think? <laughs> it was really good. It was really really interesting. He's a smart cookie, that man. Do we have to give Ted more stuff? Is all I'm asking. Yeah, I think we do. At least uh, um, stock up his sausage package. Yeah, I mean that's fair enough. And some maybe some time off. I think. No, that's not fair enough, no. <laughs> uh, you see, he's, he's, he's got a very weak negotiating um, position because he is only one dog in, in the union. That's right. Is he, is, so, he a tech, is he technically a precarious worker, actually? He is absolutely a precarious worker. He's the most precarious worker you can get. Not only that, because he's a dog, he's unlikely to live past 11, and so his retirement age is probably coming up. He's only six, but, you know, he's about hitting oh. that, that retirement age. So, yeah, yeah, by no. six, he would want to have a fully stocked pension of, of a lot of sausages. Mm. Yeah, well, he forgot to ask for that. Right. Well, we're we're terrible employers. Ah, well. But anyway, other people, um, go out there, join a, join a trade union, go find out if you can, because you should have been convinced by now, but they're very good things. Extremely. Yeah, extremely so. Especially like all this, uh, the, the, we only touched on it a little bit, but um, like the, the role automation is going to play in, in the landscape of people's careers in the future, like that's potentially devastating. Like we don't fully know how it's going to roll out yet, but I think, like you said, a union is our best bit of prep we can do for that. Absolutely. Um, I have to find out if I'm entitled to join one. I keep on forgetting, but I must. Not for this podcasting, because there's no point in unionizing where we're not getting any money. But yeah, you know, for, <laughs> for, for the thing that we actually use to uh, to pay for our Skittles and, and M&Ms. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is always subside on people. If you want to send us Skittles <laughs> or M&Ms. 
Yeah, or you don't have to do that. You can just 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 leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be that would be, be nice. That would be lovely. You can um, tweet at us. Skills. You can tweet at us. What on politics on Twitter? We're uh, we haven't we keep talking about it. Um, we're probably going to delete her Facebook. Yeah, I mean you're going to have to do it because I already deleted my Facebook profile. Yeah, you've deleted your personal one, but ah, uh, just it's just it's just not great, is it? <laughs> no, it's just it's it's not really. It's not really endemic to the whole podcasting so thing. So you won't be able to find us on Facebook, but yeah, you'll definitely be able to find us on Twitter. <laughs> it's going to be weird. We're definitely going to forget that and keep on telling us, telling people to like our Facebook page. I've been meaning to <laughs> delete it for like four weeks and I keep <laughs> not doing it. Um, yeah. So send us an email, whatampolitics at gmail.com mm-hmm. or more or tweet us or, or, or go out into the street, shout into the sky whatever question you have, and then the birds will bring it to us. Or maybe one of us will be walking past and we'll hear. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you live in Ireland or London, there's a good chance of that happening. Not a good chance. That's not how statistics work, but yes. Uh, and don't forget to, if you need to, go out and register to vote. Again, all the details for that will be in the show notes. And while you're doing it, leave the socks at home. Unless you're Jerry Adams. Unless you're In Jerry which Adams. case, vote early, vote often. <laughs> hey, do you know what's really cool? <laughs> go on. Um... The minor strike in the 80s and all the songs that are around it and how I've been listening to loads of Billy Bragg and that mm. we also found out that we have an Imro license as part of being a part of the Headstuff Network. Yeah, so yeah. Ra- rather than the uh, the wonderful Supermarket Love theme tune that we always forget to thank him for. Thank you, oh, Supermarket Love. thank you, Supermarket Love. Love. <laughs> Let's go with an outro of a Billy Bragg song. Okie doke. Is, do you want to sing it? Uh, no, because I don't have to because we have the right to play it. Oh, okay. So it's 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 now under my voice, I presume. Maybe, and I don't know, or maybe I'm playing yakety sax. <laughs> now that we have an Imro license, my, my new my new job in life is to try and work out uh, uh, a political reason, appropriate reason to play yakety sax, which I think could actually be easier than, than I initially thought. Oh, well, you've just done it. It doesn't have to be a political issue. It's just like a comedic issue. Nah, no, nah, I won't. Play. It's a Billy Bragg's play, Billy Bragg's play. Okay. Uh, uh, bye. Bye. There's power in a factory, power in the light. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.